You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Thanks, Tom, and good afternoon, everyone. It's great to see you, especially when it's such a gorgeous day outside. So it is wonderful to be here again for the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, particularly during Entrepreneurship Week. And I am absolutely delighted to share the stage with three dynamic and inspiring entrepreneurs. Jay Cohen-Gilbert, Bart Houlihan, and Andrew Kasoy, who you have full written bios of, are perhaps the most dynamic and exciting social entrepreneurs that I have worked with. And I have actually worked with a very wide range of social entrepreneurs around the world. They, they became friends as Stanford undergrads back in the late 80s. And after graduating, they all took respectable mainstream jobs. Jay was a management consultant at McKinsey. Bart went into investment banking, initially at Stonebridge Associates. Andrew went into private equity at Credit Suisse First Boston. So for those of you who are thinking about what you're going to do, these guys all initially took a pretty mainstream path. Jay was the first to get bit by the startup bug. And in the early 90s, he co-founded And One, a basketball footwear and apparel company. He was initially in charge of product and marketing there, and then became the CEO of that company. Around 94, he managed to talk Bart into leaving the investment banking world and joining him at And One. And Bart played a number of roles during his career there in finance and operations as CFO, COO, and president of And One. And in 2005, they sold the company. Andrew continued in the private equity world for 16 years in a variety of firms, most recently as a partner at MSD Real Estate Capital, which is an affiliate of Michael Dell's $12 billion investment vehicle. So I think you get a sense from their backgrounds that, first of all, they have all acquired very significant business skills. They've also attained more than modest financial success while they're still relatively young, at least by my standards. And now they've decided to become social entrepreneurs, foregoing far more lucrative career opportunities that any one of them could pursue to self-fund the initial startup of B-Lab and B Corporation that we're going to learn a lot more about here over the next several minutes. This is, in my view, a very bold play. It's really kind of a swing for the fence, and arguably pretty risky. But I think one of the very exciting things that's going on in the social venture space. So let's now find out exactly what they're up to. So I'm going to start with you, Jay. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what B Corporation is? Um. I've been, I've been counseled to be as brief as possible. So here's my briefest, <laughs> my, my briefest answer for, uh, and you can't laugh, Chris, is, uh, uh, is B corporations are a new type of corporation 
that use the power of business to create public benefit. Okay, say a little bit more. I want a little bit more. <laughs> and, uh, and the way you would know a B Corporation when you saw one is you'd, you'd know it by three characteristics. The first is, uh, has to do with standards, and that B Corporations meet a set of comprehensive and transparent social and environmental performance standards. The second has to do with their legal structure, uh, which reflects the intentions of these purpose-driven entrepreneurs and social investors, which is they have actually amended their articles of incorporation to expand the responsibilities of their corporation to include consideration of the interests of not only their shareholders, but also their employees, suppliers, community, and environment. And the third way you'd be able to tell it's a B Corporation is to get a nifty little logo. <laughs> Um, that is a B Corporation logo. And so you've seen like a, a C Corp or an S Corp, so this is a, these are B Corporations. And so those, uh, that B Corp logo you would see on consumer products companies, technology companies, financial intermediaries, and today there are about uh, just over 80 uh, B Corporations that collectively represent about a $650 million marketplace. Great. So, Bart, we've seen a lot of other standards and consumer labeling efforts up to this point. Things like Fair Trade and Energy Star and the GRI. So what's different about this? Sure. It, it's different in, in two very important ways. Uh, the, the first is most of those certifications are very stovepipe focused. They're either product specific or process specific. Whereas B Corporation certification applies to the whole company. We're trying to measure a company's impact on its environment, its employees, its consumer set its community, and its leadership qualities. Those are the five things we're trying to measure. So first and foremost, whole company rather than individual product or practice. Mm -hmm. Second important element is, as Jay mentioned, there's three different components that make up a B Corporation. The first, what I just mentioned, is standards or performance. But we're trying to drive more than just performance to this community. We're also talking about accountability and transparency. On the accountability side, Jay had mentioned something about our legal framework. And it's really kind of cool. Uh, we have found a way to expand the responsibilities of corporations to include more than just shareholders. That in their day-to-day -day operations, an organization must take into consideration a broader set. That same group I mentioned before, employees, community, environment. That element is entirely different than any other certification component out of it because it's, it's applying accountability. Not only do you need, need to meet those standards, you also can be held accountable to those standards. The third component is transparency. On the back end of becoming a B Corporation, you actually make available to the public exactly how you did, identifying not only where you excelled, but also where you were relatively weak. So those are the three elements, transparency, accountability, performance. Great. So, Andrew, you guys are all pretty successful, experienced, talented business guys. There are good looking, I left out good looking. There are lots of things you could be doing now career-wise. Why are you doing this? Well, let me say, first of all, I feel like after that intro that we should all be like getting up and, and dancing a, a jig or something to be, 
to be as charismatic and uh, <clears throat> and exciting and dynamic as you've made us as you made us sound. Particularly when what we're doing is sort of a uh, is is an infrastructure play, which is not the most sexy and exciting thing uh, in the world to do. Um, I think to answer your question, I guess a couple of a couple of things. I mean, we the three of us have known each other for over 20 years at this point, um, and uh, and I think discovered a pretty common set of values and, and views about um, social justice and social progress over not uh, an insignificant number of beers at the, what used to be called the coffee house. I don't even know if it still is when we were students here. Uh, and but, but we've also had very different experiences since then in the private sector. And so I think we've, we've kind of come to this in, in different ways. And so maybe I can, I can talk about it from both like a, a, a sort of like a macro social justice point of view and also a much more personal one and the personal one I think each of the three of us could probably answer very differently. Um, for me, I wanted to, after working in the private equity industry in the mainstream world of, of, um, you know, of, of the capital markets, um, I wanted to figure out a way to have a life that was much more consistent with my values where my work and my uh, and my consumption and my investment and my philanthropy decisions could all be thought about in a, in a consistent whole. Um, and at least I, I found it very difficult in the, um, in, in, in the, in the capital markets to, to live like that. I found that like, the more successful I was or the more possibility of financial success there was, the harder it was to do that, not, not the easier. Um, and the second thing is, is sort of from a, maybe a more big picture perspective, I grew up believing very strongly in the power of the American dream as, as an idea that could propel great social progress uh, and in, and in uh, service, public service, as, as sort of the highest calling, which I always thought about as politics and public policy. So I had a very narrow view. Um, and over the course of a number of, of years of being in the private sector, um, I had some aha moments, which I think a lot of other people would, would call no-duh moments. But, um, and, and so just let me list them really quickly because they get at a lot of why collectively we decided that um, creating B Lab and the concept of a B Corporation, essentially a, a responsible a responsible and recognizable business and, and marketplace made sense. Um, the first sort of aha for me was the idea that we're living in a pretty schizophrenic society that um, on one hand, it's a, it's a, and, and Stanford is a great microcosm of this, on one hand, it's all about innovation and speed and globalization and wealth creation. And on the other hand, um, people uh, very desperate, I think, to have more meaning and purpose in their lives and more control over what goes on in a, in a rapidly accelerating society. And so there's this kind of need to reconcile success and significance um, and, and a sense of interdependence. Um, and, and that, uh, I think, kind of the, the recognition of that, at least for me, led to, led to a question of how to be um, more engaged in social progress um, and spending a lot of time around social entrepreneurs, which has primarily been a, recognized as a nonprofit uh, movement up until now. The idea of innovation as a different way of driving the nonprofit sector in the face of a 
sort of stovepipe society where government, the private sector, and the nonprofit sector all kind of exist by themselves, and there are big barriers between them. Um, and in doing, in looking at that model, it started to become very clear to me that the private sector could actually be a much more powerful engine for social change uh, than the nonprofit or the government sector can be, and it's pretty easily seen in the in the relative size of the private sector. It's you know, depending upon how you want to look at the numbers. It's 75 to 85 percent of economic activity in the U.S. is private sector activity, and so if we're going to figure out a way to create social progress, that needs to come through. Uh, that needs to come through figuring out how to make the private sector work more effectively, and um, and then. Uh, you know, having impact in the private sector requires a set of, of standards and, and a different legal structure and a capital market that can allow capital to come to ideas that can be both profitable but also create positive social impact. And so as the three of us sort of started talking about some of those ideas, um, you know, the, the, what became clear was that what we what ended up doing was the best way for the three of us to use our time. And, oh, by the way, bonus, um, getting to work with, uh, you know, two of your best friends is a, pretty, is a pretty nice way of getting up every morning to go to work. So that's why. It's a very long explanation. I apologize. But. Cool. It was a good one. <laughs> so this all sounds conceptually pretty interesting. But is anybody really signing on? Jay, who are some of the founding B corporations? Right. So of the, of the 80 or so that signed up in the first few months, uh, there are a few names. I think people are probably be more familiar with like consumer products companies than, yep. than other folks. So some of the consumer products companies you might have heard of, there's some Stanford grads, Eric Ryan and Adam Lowry, that founded a company called Method. Um, so for any of you that use like the home care, personal care stuff, it's about a $100 million high growth consumer products company that does amazing cradle-to-cradle uh, -cradle, uh, uh, design, environmental stewardship. Um, there's another company called Seventh Generation uh, that's in the, same, in the same type of business, also about the same size. There's a 200-year-old company called King Arthur Flower. You all look like there's a lot of bakers in the room. <laughs> I, can, I can tell. And so uh, there's, a, there's this 200-year-old company out of Vermont that's 100% employee-owned. Uh, they're a founding B Corporation. And so you get, so th those are some of the consumer products companies. Um, then there are other financial intermediaries, some of them out here in the Bay Area. One's called Good Capital um, that's doing very innovative stuff with their social enterprise fund. Another one called TBL Capital um, for triple bottom line. And then a really cool small social venture fund called Agora Partnerships that's doing a social venture in Nicaragua. So there's financial intermediaries, there's consumer products companies, and then a host of stuff in between B2B businesses, uh, technology companies, et cetera. From, from, from small, small sole proprietorships to national brands to global financial intermediaries. I think there's about, maybe I think out of the 80 companies or so, there's 17 different states represented across a couple dozen industries, all told. So Bart, what do you think these founding B Corps hope to get out of this? I think there's a couple things. Um, the first and most obvious is differentiation. Uh, right now, I mean, everybody here in this audience knows that you can pick up any national magazine and you will find at least a half dozen ads with a big sun rising in the background or some gnarled hands holding soil falling between. And the, the truth is, guys, we have no idea who's doing what right now. It's incredibly difficult 
to figure out who's green, who's charitable, who's responsible, who's sustainable. And the more we use the words, the less they mean. So the first thing is this allows an organization to clearly differentiate itself, to, to differentiate between a good company and just good marketing. Second element is that legal component that we were talking about. Uh, what the legal component allows a business to do is to make sure that mission that is so central to the organization is maintained over time. Because that legal framework can withstand new employees, it can withstand new management, it can withstand new investment dollars, and it can even withstand a change of ownership. So you are, you are in fact, baking into the DNA of the business this social mission. And if you talk to those entrepreneurs, that's incredibly critical to them. I mean, it's, it's who they are, it's why they started their business, and to be able to know that it's going to last over time and not be dependent upon that, that innovative, uh, inspirational leader, that's really important to them. Third, we're developing a host of services. You know, we need to serve these companies, and that ranges everything from shared platforms, whether it be distribution platforms or healthcare platforms, It'll include uh, B2B community. These folks are anxious to, to work with other mission-aligned entrepreneurs. Uh, it'll even be uh, direct services, whether it be consulting services. And perhaps last, uh, but most importantly, what we hear from the entrepreneurs is they want to influence the market beyond their individual organization. If you ask them about why they're doing this, uh, fundamentally, they want to create a new model. And to date, they haven't been able to name it. They haven't been able to define it. And all of a sudden, there's this umbrella brand that speaks to them, both on the performance and the accountability side, that, that really captures what they're looking for. So being able to influence a broader uh, set of companies beyond their individual business. Andrew, you might want to follow up on the, in terms of how, how, how these companies are influencing the market and, and what building this community does, not just for creating collective voice to help them differentiate themselves, but sort of what it paves the way for from a capital markets and a policy standpoint might be useful. Right. I mean, I think a lot of uh, it, it is very hard for these kinds of, for, for, for mission-oriented businesses to grow rapidly, raise capital, even um, look at liquidity decisions uh, in an environment where where they know that both from a from a legal and a and a financial perspective, the pressure is going to be to uh, is is going to be mostly on creating shareholder value as quickly as possible. And most mainstream, and we and we also we live in a financial market environment where there's a tremendous amount of capital, but almost no one uh, invests their own capital. Everyone is an intermediary for somebody else, layered upon layer and layer. And as a result of that, most people uh, act according to, to a relatively standard set of, 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 quote, fiduciary duties, which are all put in the, in the lens of, of maximizing shareholder value. And, and what that means is that for most companies that want to grow, they have a decision between uh, sort of you know, selling, their, selling their soul, if you will, or at least risking that. Um, risking that someone is going to take control of their business and say, yeah, the mission, that was nice, but let's focus on what's really important. Um, and, so, and so putting that uh, sense of mission into the DNA of the business with the, with the legal work and by having those standards which create a comparable set of metrics across businesses in terms of social and environmental performance then allows investors who care about those kinds of things to make decisions 
uh, and put their capital uh, where, their, where their values are. Um, and, and, and one thing that should be clear is this, is, um, th this stuff can sound sort of dreamy or hopeful uh, sometimes when, you know, in the abstract, but it's important to recognize that there is a huge marketplace uh, or there's a huge market of existing activity. We're not kind of, we're not making this up. All we're doing really is trying to create some infrastructure that allows uh, people to identify all of these kinds of businesses uh, and allows capital to flow to these kinds of businesses so that they can grow into a more significant part of the economy. And so, you know, you have today, uh, in a $25 trillion equity market in the U.S., you have $2.5 trillion of capital, which already thinks about itself as socially responsible. Now, it's important to say that most of that is, um, is, is institutional money that screens out tobacco stocks or gambling stocks or essentially people doing what's called negative screening of sin stocks. Um, but as a statement of intention, it's a statement that people want to invest their capital with some set of principles or values infused into the investment decision. And even if you back off of that huge number and just look at the $100 billion or so of direct impact-oriented investing in microfinance or, um, uh, or community venture capital funds and clean tech and things like that, um, you know, you get a strong sense there is a lot of capital there, the, but the impediment to a lot of it is that lack of standards or that lack of sense of what you're actually getting in return for any kind of financial trade-off you might be making uh, as, as social and environmental return. And so the, 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 the hope is that by building this infrastructure, um, both the legal and the standards, uh, that, you then, that you, you then have created a platform on which capital can more easily flow into the marketplace. So how many of you in this room have heard about B corporations before you came into this room today? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, a few of you, and you don't all work there. So the desire to differentiate clearly a compelling goal, is somewhat dependent on people connecting with that little b. Jay, why don't you talk a little bit about how you're going to let the world know that this exists and build that awareness that then the founders and the new companies that join right. can take advantage of? It's a great question because there's been a host, of, a host of attempts to do uh, certifications schemes that have failed or even existing product specific ones are not often fairly well known and one of the one of the things that's sort of built into most of their business models is uh, that it's fairly unscalable because they tend that the, the narrowness of their focus limits the the market uh, capacity for if all you're doing is certifying bananas well then you might certify all the bananas in the world but it's still just bananas um, whereas B corporations can exist across every sector of the economy. And so uh, the, the, the underlying business model, B Lab, the organization that we uh, co-founded, is a nonprofit organization because at the core of it's a standards body and we have to have our interests totally aligned with the marketplace um, and no sense of uh, uh, you know, contrary interests. So we're a nonprofit, but anybody that wants to be a B corporation um, you, people can use the rating system, they can use the legal framework, all that stuff is up there on the web, totally available to anybody whether they, want, whether they care about us or not. Um, but if they want to actually become a B Corporation, they pay a licensing fee. Mm -hmm. 
and that licensing fee uh, is 10 basis points, or one-tenth of 1% 1 of sales, 1000 bucks per million dollars in net sales. Um, so for, of the, if the 80 companies that are currently certified represent about a $650 million marketplace, that means within six months of, of sort of saying hello to the world, there's a $650,000 a year annual recurring revenue stream for the nonprofit to use to continue to evolve the standards, do the auditing, work on the marketing and branding so that we can educate consumers, investors, policymakers about this, and then to do some of the underlying work to help accelerate the marketplace with the services that Bart talked about or developing more efficient capital markets or policy incentives that Andrew talked about. And that, that's a, that's th that model, that, that, that uh, revenue model is, is, amazing, is amazingly leverageable when you think about the fact that, as Andrew mentioned, there's a huge existing marketplace of companies already in the United States that self-identify as sustainable or green or responsible or charitable or social enterprise. Conservatively, you know, there are between 20 and 30,000 businesses in the United States that today that we can look at their names and find their addresses and they're in existing membership associations and they pay their dues. Um, the issue is not are they there or not. The issue is is it fact or fiction because there are no requirements other than do you pay your membership dues. Mm -hmm. um, and so with that, uh, those 20, 30,000 businesses represent, again, conservatively, a 40 or $50 billion marketplace. And to put that into context, take the revenues of every single major sports franchise in the United States, baseball, basketball, football, and we can even throw in hockey if you think it's a major sports franchise. Um, sorry for anybody who's from like the north or something like that. Um, and then you could throw in ESPN like on top of it. And that would only equal half the market presence of this existing marketplace of sustainable business and social enterprise. So if we're just able to look, again, sort of initially start by harnessing the energy that's already there, um, we're talking about uh, a robust business model for this NGO, for, for B-Lab, that will create... Um, tens of millions of dollars of operating surplus that we can then use to, to plow back into helping to build the infrastructure for the marketplace. And so the answer to the question of, it's no, I mean, I would be shocked if more than, I, shoot, I was shocked if four people even heard of it, you know, like that's, we're way ahead of the game. Um, it is, like, this is brand new. And the experience that we had at AND1 is, uh, is marketing or branding is not an event. Marketing is a process. And, in, in, and it's actually a cumulative process. And so we are beginning the cumulative process of building the, this brand for good companies called B Corporations. And so the different layers of that all fed by, most importantly, it's fed by the community itself. And so if you've got $650 million brand out there today that's just beginning to integrate those logos onto 7 million bags of flour and half a million catalogs and 30, you know, uh, painting trucks and quarter, you know, whatever, 350 yard signs in suburban Philadelphia for Nolan painting. Like, all those little things are the things that you see as you go about and live your life. And you say, oh, yeah, no, I've heard of that. I might have heard about it at the bank, or I might have seen it at this restaurant, or I might have seen it on this, the hang tag from this uh, clothing or apparel company. And all of a sudden, all that together begins to build critical mass. That's the first thing, and basically that's free. That's basically the community itself saying, we are now more than the sum of our parts. Behind, beyond that is, is PR. And one thing that we did incredibly successfully and won, like so Bart and I built this company together with a lot of help from a ton of other people um, over a decade plus. And far and away the most successful stuff we did had nothing to do with the money we were spending. We knew that we were, Nike would, we could outspend us every day. And so we weren't gonna beat them through outspending them. But what we could do is we could create compelling stories 
that the press would pick up on. And, and so, you know, the mo the, we got like I think 25 or 30 million dollars worth of media coverage back at AM1 when we signed Latrell Sprewell. He may be, this may be like a way bad reference for this particular audience. <laughs> but uh, that being said, um, and we, we ran an ad, we, we, we spent $75,000 to produce an ad. We ran it once during the NBA playoffs, cost us $400,000. So for under a $500,000 investment, we got $25 million with the media coverage, 60-minute story, New York Times Magazine, et cetera, et cetera because we, we figured out a story that was topical and that would sort of get sucked into a media story. The beauty of what's going on now in this space that Andrew's talking about and that Bart's talked about it is we don't have to create media interest in things green or sustainable or responsible. Muhammad Yunus won the freaking Nobel Peace Prize for crying out loud. You know, Bill Gates is being covered in the Wall Street Journal the day before he delivers his speech at Davos talking about creative capitalism. Like the wind is at our backs. Like we're at a, in the last, just literally the last two or three years, the, everything has changed. And so we are just providing a story that's ready made to go into this current media hunger for, you know, I've been, I've been, I've, if I have to see another green issue of some magazine, I'm going to throw up. And all the editors and reporters are saying the same thing, which is, well, everything can't be green. And so once you ask that question, or is, is it just about being green? What about people? And so once you ask those questions, we are, we are a logical part of that story. And so we've gotten an inordinate and, and, and perhaps undeserved amount of press for, for, for where we are in our business cycle development. And, but it's all free. And literally every bit of that press is because we just answer the phone, hello, B-Lab, and they say, oh, hi, it's Inc. We'd like to talk to you about doing a story. And so there's the co-branding effort, there's the PR, those are the two primary things. And then, you know, we had reasonable success building a quarter billion dollar company, creating an emotional connection with consumers around, you know, you know a brand for, for good ball players. And now we're just using those same tools to create a brand for good business. And, um, and one of the most exciting things on the more traditional thing is a partnership with Good Magazine. It's a very cool young magazine that hopefully you guys will check out uh, to create uh, potentially a new title called Good Business that becomes a voice sort of for, you know, for business people who give a damn. And, uh, and that's an example of uh, another type of marketing that's really about creating a vehicle to own a message, um, not just run a print ad or run a TV ad or figure out how to do a cool video that gets uploaded onto YouTube and spit out. Um, but there's a way, to, how do we own a message and own a, own a distribution channel for that message that becomes a, 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 puts a megaphone up in front of all those tens of thousands of businesses and those, those $2.5 trillion worth of investment capital. And we just create a frame around which to see them a little bit more clearly and a way for them to be heard with a little bit more, uh, a little bit more amplification to their message than they might have had if they were all doing it on their own. So I'm going to ask one more question on a slightly different track and then open it up to the audience. Job sharing doesn't really spring to mind as a winning approach for startup CEOs. But one could argue that's essentially what the three of you are doing. There is no CEO of this venture. You have different and I think fabulously complementary backgrounds, but you really are sharing the leadership. So I'd like to throw out to all of you the question of what's that like? You know, what, what's really hard about it? What's really good about it? I think most people in the Silicon Valley, most venture capitalists, if you said, we're going to do a startup and we're all three going to lead it together, they would 
have a less than positive reaction. So I think it's a really interesting aspect of what you're doing, and I think it would be fun to hear you talk about it a little. See these scars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, we, we, we had a similar experience at N1, where there were, there were three of us that founded the company and, 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 and a solid five, six people that were really part of the key leadership team there. And so we come out of a decade-plus experience of running a real team-based organization. And there, there are a handful of benefits. Far and away, the most important benefit is, you know, they're all smarter than I am. And so you start with the recognition that you find people smarter than you, and then you grab onto them and say, don't leave. And, and that's a pretty good strategy, because none, none of us are good enough to do this stuff on our own. Um, and so the most important thing about the job sharing is just because it enables you to do more and do it better. Um, the, the next most important thing, if you're lucky enough to, to do this with people that you love and that you respect, um, is that you can call each other out. Uh, and, and so there's nobody, you, when you guys fire away questions, you know, and I hope you're incredibly critical and, and et cetera, there is no way you can be as critical of us as we are of each other. And, and that, I think, comes out of the, the total trust that we have in each other and the recognition that we've all got you know, relatively skilled and, and diverse sets of skills. And so if st for stuff to get out of our building and out into the world, it has to have already gone through a pretty aggressive little gauntlet. Um, and I think that's incredibly powerful. And, that, and you, it's hard to do if you're just, I'm the man, and I got the idea. And so, well, then you hire a bunch of people, all lesser than you, who are just saluting. And then, hey, if you're right, God bless. You know, but truth is, you're most likely going to be wrong, way more than you're going to be right. And so you need people around uh, to, bounce, to bounce ideas off of and to check you and to check your own ego and your own, because often your instincts are incorrect. And so I think those are the, it's all about the team, you know. There, there, the experience at AN1 we're trying to duplicate to some degree here at, at BLAM. Uh, the experience at AN1 was we had two founding principles. The team with the most superstars wins and the best idea wins. Period. Uh, I think we were in our seventh year when we uh, created job titles. I think at the time we were probably about 72 million in revenues before we created job titles. And frankly, the reason we created job titles was because we had too many people who didn't understand what exactly we did. So we had to make sure they understood that we had a function at the organization. Um, but I'm dead serious about it. It, it, it was, uh, Jay's exactly right. Uh, that it's all about uh, recognizing uh, that you can't do it alone, that it always requires a team, and uh, once you have that team, the humility to recognize that a best idea most likely won't come from this team. It's going to come from some of our staff who's here in the audience. It's going to come from outside the organization, and you've got to be great listeners. you just got to be a great listener. You've got to listen to what your team's saying, you gotta listen to what your staff's saying, and in this particular venture, we gotta listen to what the community's saying. Because we're brand new to this space. We're brand new to social entrepreneurship, social enterprise, and there are people who've done this work for 35 years. And if you look back two years ago to how this started and what, what our idea was two years ago and where it is now, it couldn't be more different. It couldn't be more different, and we hope we hope that's because we're good listeners. So I also worked in 
a series of organizations because they were private equity partnerships that, <clears throat> in fact, didn't have titles either other than a, a bunch of partners working together. Um, but they were a bunch of partners working together that, uh, for the most part, were, uh, didn't, didn't like each other all that much. Um, and as a, res as a result, uh, you had a lot of bad, bad cultures and, um, uh, and w in an environment as a result where either you know, greed or ego or some combination generally was, the, was, was what won the day. Um, and that's, that's not all that functional. So, um, so I was very used to working in a, in a partnership environment, but not a very pleasant one. And, um, and, and so for, for me, what's been, what's been a revelation is that you can actually do that in a different kind of environment, and, um, and particularly where it's built on respect and really importantly, I think, trust and a, and a common set of objectives, you can make that work uh, pretty damn well. And I'm not an entrepreneur, and I haven't been an operator. In my in my previous career, I was an investor, and and uh, and I can't think of anything better than having partners who fill all of the holes uh, in the experiences that I don't have, and where I can add value the other way around. And as a result of that, we've functioned, I think, pretty well without having titles. We kind of know we have a pretty instinctive sense of who's going to take control of what, and who's going to care more or be better at certain things. Um, and I think the last thing is uh, there's, there is a lot of checking of the ego at the door because in the end we will succeed or fail as a, as, a, as a threesome or even as a larger organization, not based on the, uh, the celebrity or um, uh, uh, not based on the celebrity of one of us. Great. So let me open it up and here you go. Jump right in. Deborah, can you repeat the question, please? The question was, what would a startup have to do to live up to the B Corp standard in the early stages, and would it likely slow down a startup? It's a great question. Um, and we actually had a debate at the beginning as we were talking about startups, uh, specifically whether somebody who was a startup could become a B Corporation, whether a pre-revenue company could actually receive certification when fundamentally a component of that certification is performance. And at the end of the day, what we decided is no, performance has to be a component of it. And to that end, a startup must have an operating principle and operations that fulfills the needs of those performance requirements. That being said, what we're trying to provide is the toolkit for companies to start off as B corporations rather than convert. You know, ideally, you want people to incorporate this language at the get-go, when they're doing their incorporation, that they look through the survey and understand what the principles are and the requirements on the performance standards so that they start operating in that, in that manner at the get-go. Uh, we have lists of policies that we expect organizations to incorporate as they grow, as they go from one person to five people to 30 people to 30-plus. All of that is laid out on the, on the website so that people can actually build into uh, becoming a B Corporation. And that might be a good time to mention the URL of that website. That's a great idea, Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> to bcorporation.net. That's the letter B and the word corporation all spelled out, .net. Um, you'll, you'll see basically the survey. And so you can click at it. Everything's there so you can see what the questions are. And to your, to your question, 
The survey is different depending upon the industry that you're in and depending upon how many employees you have. And so the, there are fewer questions for a startup business than there are for a $100 million business. And there are, there are the weightings of all the questions are different for a service business than for a manufacturing business. So when you complete the profile, it's going to give you a more intelligent set of answers. So the requirements are effectively are slightly different depending upon where you are in your organizational development. And, and the quick and dirty thing for the second piece, which is the legal, is A, don't incorporate as a Delaware C Corp. So there's something on the agenda during Entrepreneur Week that I noticed over at the, at, at the uh, business school that there's, there's literally today, there's a, there's a panel for the JD MBA candidates on Delaware. Why is it so important? <laughs> and, and the answer for why it's so important is it's the place with the most, uh, it is the most shareholder friendly legal environment. So if you want to run a stakeholder friendly business, do not incorporate in Delaware, even though that's where your attorney will tell you to go and that's where your accountant will tell you to go because that's where everybody goes. And everybody goes there because it has the best, the best shareholder protective language. And so uh, the recommended states are, are either New York or PA um, that both provide an underlying context that is more stakeholder friendly, but also will make your attorneys and your, your board more comfortable because they're real states with real legislative history and more predictable uh, case law. Pennsylvania, not Palo Alto. For <laughs> oh yeah, my, my bad. <laughs> Thanks. We're going to wait for the microphones, which are coming quickly down the aisle. We have two, so we're going to go back That's and forth. That's good. So uh, this question is kind of going a little bit back to fundamentals, but you guys self-identify as, as social entrepreneurs starting a social enterprise, and we all know that it's a rather fuzzy term right now, so I was hoping that you could shed some light on both what it means to be a social entrepreneur and what it means to have a social enterprise. Um, and how that's different than a typical entrepreneurial venture or a nonprofit. So in fairness, I think I identify them that way, but they can answer the question anyway. So, so I would say uh, B corporations are, is a term that's used to define a business. So you cannot be a B corporation if you are a nonprofit doing really cool things and you get an Ashoka Fellowship or an Echoing Green Fellowship or something like that. So B corporations are specifically private enterprise for public benefit. Um, social, the term social entrepreneur uh, and even social enterprise, while as Andrew said earlier, is probably the history of that has probably come more out of the nonprofit sector but has increasingly bled into the for-profit sector and sort of into the a hybrid space, whatever the heck that means. Um, and so in general, uh, we're trying to answer that question about what it is by not engaging in that debate and saying what is needed is something that is readily identifiable and what we're trying to speak to is people that have decided to use business as a tool for social change and for those businesses that are trying to do that, that have met these standards, they're called B corporations. And so that being said, from our point of view, our little worldview, um, I think that a Bill Drayton from Ashoka would, would we could probably agree that Bill, they would say that somebody who's, who's saying they're creating a purpose-driven enterprise and they're doing some, applying the skill sets of an entrepreneur, of market discipline, sort of, sort of consumer or you know, client feedback and accountability um, into the creation of and the, evolu the continuous sort of improvement and evolution of that enterprise, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. So that's like the broadest 
most nebulous frame, and we're trying to create focus around a piece of that, which is basically you know, for-profit, purpose-driven businesses. But the reason I refer to these three guys as social entrepreneurs is because, in my definition, a social entrepreneur is someone who takes a very entrepreneurial approach to making a systemic change, not just putting on Band-Aids, to deliver social value. And I think that's exactly what they're doing. That's a, that, her answer was much better. <laughs> <laughs> okay, over here. Um, so I'm a pretty simple-minded consumer, and, but I, I care about the world and the environment. Um, say I am able to find B corporations to satisfy every consumer need I have, from the lumber to build my house to the food I eat to um, the paint on my car. Um, what does that mean? Can I, can I go to sleep at night, rest assured that my carbon footprint is zero, that my consumer dollars aren't going to, um, you know, polluting rivers and, you know, China next to factories, that um, everyone's getting a living wage wherever they're, um, you know, making my shoes. You should congratulate yourself on being the first bee human. <laughs> so I think that what you can, you can go to sleep knowing that you're doing everything you can to to, to to minimize the harm that you're doing through your consumption and maximizing the benefit that you're creating through your active consumption. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be zero uh, harm, and it doesn't mean it's going to be ultimate benefit. But it just means among the choices that you have, uh, you're making the choices. You've, you've consciously opted in to make the choices with your consumption. Or somebody else may say the same thing about their investment portfolio, that are trying to maximize uh, the social benefit through your participation in the marketplace. And one layer of that is just B corporations or not, which is really a certification. Sitting on top of the certification is actually a rating system. So think of it as an S&P rating system, but for sustainability. Um, and so on, whether you're a B corporation or not is sort of the binary in or out. Uh, but then whether you're one star, two star, three star, et cetera, then creates a way for you to say, OK, I want to actually now uh, dial up the impact, the positive impact of what I'm doing. And you can do that either on an aggregate basis, or as you said, maybe you really care about the environment because you think Al Gore is just the greatest. And so you're going to say, I love B Corps, but I really want to focus on those B Corps that are, have five-star environmental practices. Somebody else may say, you know, that's all well and good, but even uh, uh, post the sea levels rising, there's still going to be like 2.6 billion people living on less than a dollar a day. So I'm going to focus on community impact and global poverty. And you can find those B corporations either as investments or consumer product decisions um, that are best address that are using the power of business to address global poverty. So we've tried to create a flexible system in the in the B rating system to allow you to either a do the kind of the very quick pass. What's the brand? It's a, it's got a swoosh on it. It's a Nike. I'm an athlete. You know, it, it's the equivalent of that is it's a B corp. I know it's been checked, and I'm and I'm doing my bit. They're, just like there are people who want to go a little bit further than that, there'll be people in this community that want to go further and say, I want to target my investments or I want to target my consumption for maximum impact. And they're going to have to figure, you know, they can do all the, the cool search engine and figure out what the best one is there for their consumption or for their investment portfolio. Or you may be, maybe you're going to work for government and you want to create a, uh, a sustainable 
uh, procurement initiative for the state of California because you're going to be governor one day. You can't do that today because no one can define what's a sustainable business. And so back to the infrastructure play here, is this infrastructure that we're building, the marketplace that we're building for these companies, is not just relevant to you as a consumer or to you as an investor, it's also relevant to you as you know, the future governor of a state because now you can, you can create a procurement preference or a tax incentive or, or, or a, uh, uh, an investment preference to favor these types of companies to further sort of put your foot on the accelerator for getting more capital and talent to flow into more beneficial activities. Like that's the ultimate objective of what we're doing. The specifics of the rating system and the legal framework, whether there's 80 companies or 800 companies, is all just getting to that critical mass where what we're actually doing is uh, we're, we're creating the tools to build a new sector of the economy um, that is harnessing the power of business to create public benefit. And in 30 years' time, that's what we'll see. So when your kids and your grandkids are lining up at the CPPC, if that still exists, for jobs, the longest line should be at the B Corp jobs. And um, when you put in your money for the IRA to have your kids go to, not the IRA, but you know, for your 529 or whatever to get your kids to go to school, you can put it in a B fund so that, as Andrew said, you do as, as best a job as you can to get your stuff into alignment. And right now, that's a lot harder than it ought to be. Just so we're, to make, make it clear that um, th this stuff can come off as sounding like we think we're saving the world. And so the, the, the one thing I would say is, those things are all great, but um, you know there's still a an, there's still an incredibly broad group of problems out there that this won't solve that will always require um, the nonprofit sector and philanthropy um, and government and 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 things that that consumption in the private sector just will never be able to to uh, fulfill and individuals, whether it's through you know, voting or other kinds of volunteer work, um, and, and I think also really importantly through maybe just choosing to consume less, um, can also have a huge impact on, on a lot of social problems that, 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 that we won't be able to solve even if we're wildly successful with what we're trying to do. I'm just gonna say that. I'll, I've ignored this side of the room. Oh, I'm going to continue to ignore this side of the room. I apologize. Okay, up here. Um, why the name B Corporation? I mean, if you're a company, why wouldn't you rather have your consumers look at you as, say, an A Corporation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for good. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, so, so you've heard of C Corps and S Corps. Uh, you might not have heard of T-Corps, which are cooperatives. So we basically had 23 letters to choose from. <laughs> and, and the reason why we were picking letters is because ultimately what, we're, what we want is le formal legal recognition. This is all a path towards formal legal recognition for a new corporate form. And on the backs of that, tax incentives, procurement preferences, investment preferences, et cetera. And so we know the IRS wants a letter. So we got to pick a letter. We got 23 to choose from. And, uh, and the going, at least the going joke, and you can hear more if you want to come to the reception, is that B stands for the benefits that are created for all stakeholders, not just shareholders. So in the shorthand, these are beneficial corporations. So that's the, that's the reason for the B. Okay, everybody join me and give them a round of applause, please. Thank you.